Hello and welcome to the Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. It's been a while, but this is the March podcast, bringing you two evidence-based questions and a little bit of evidence-based information. As you might know, Archimedes is the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where clinicians ask a clinical question, go to the evidence to see what the best evidence is to answer it, appraise that evidence, and then come up with a summary in a commentary that really puts that evidence into clinical practice and answers the clinical question that their whole thing started with. The critical appraisal bit this month is about cases or controls. You see, I've noticed there's a fair few things in the world where the phrases, where the actual meaning can be unclear or uncertain or possibly interpreted differently by different folk. Um, Take maybe later. When that's used by a parent to the child, it clearly means no to the parent and yes, but not now to the child. Or topically the word Brexit. But the word of science, the world of science can't be confused, can it? Well, just have a look through the field of case control studies. That is, studies that have the title case control. And you might find yourself upset to discover that it actually can. Now, I'm fairly clear what I mean by case control study is a design where the participants are chosen because they have developed the outcome of interest. That's the ones with cases or they haven't got the outcome of interest, and those are the ones that are the controls. So the outcome might be that they died, or developed a neuroblastoma, or were excluded from school. The analysis is then about finding out if these groups had a different level of exposure to a proposed causative factor, and that might be blood transfusions, uh, consuming bacon, or watching the X factor. What is not a case control study is one where the groups are chosen because of their exposure to a particular treatment or lack of that exposure. That is a comparative cohort study. Now, as is often the case when appraising papers, it doesn't really matter what the authors have written. It's what they've done that counts. So, if you come across one that is incorrectly titled, discount their title and appraise the study to what it actually is. The first question we have this month is one from a team in Australia. Lisa Gringlington, Noel Krasik and Amanda Gee have asked the question about what is the risk of a repeat non-immediate allergic reaction to amoxicillin or a cephalosporin if a child has had a previous non-immediate reaction. Their case is a four-year-old child with an otitis media that they've decided needs treatment with antibiotics. After a short discussion, the parents realise that that's the same antibiotic that produced a reaction around six hours or so after it was taken, and they show you a picture of an urticarial rash. You're left wondering, should I re-challenge this child with simple amoxicillin or a different thing, a cephalosporin, and what is the risk of that reaction, which is not an immediate reaction, it's not an anaphylaxis, happening again? So, the team asked a structured clinical question. In a child with a history of non-immediate reaction to amoxicillin, that's the patient, the P bit of PICO, that is re-challenged with the same drug or an oral cephalosporin, that would be the intervention and the comparison, what is the risk of developing repeat reaction to the drug?
The team went off and they searched three different databases to find 282 potential articles. That was excluding single case reports or letters or brief commentaries on single items. And of those, they found five relevant publications and contacted the authors of six other ones to see if they would be relevant or not. Unfortunately, they didn't get anything back from those authors, but it's a brave go trying. Of these papers, they ranged in size from 337 kids in one of them through 141, 43, 21, and down to the smallest with only 18 children. On the whole, they did a couple of different things. Some of them looked at intradermal testing to see if that would predict whether the oral challenge was going to produce a reaction or not. And the others went on to give an oral challenge. Now, the oral challenge was with amoxicillin rather than with a cephalosporin. And they got a range of different responses. Some of them challenged for a full treatment course at a five days. Some gave a couple of days. But the actual range of responses was relatively low. Even in the full dose five-day course, it was only up to around about 10% of kids did have a response and 90% of them did not have a further response. The ones that used a shorter dose or a smaller period of time were down lower at 0 to 2%. Of all of the ones that were re-challenged, there were no episodes of anaphylaxis, so to that extent it seemed really quite safe. The authors note in their clinical bottom lines that in children with a history of non-immediate reaction to amoxicillin, the risk of a repeat reaction is probably less than 10%, and that skin provocation or intradermal tests are poorly predictive of what that oral challenge will give. They also note that there really isn't any data on the risk of cephalosporin cross-reactivity in this group. Now the second question that's being asked is of the paediatric intensive care unit. The authors are Matthew Beek and James Fraser from Bristol in the UK and they ask a question based on a scenario where a nine-month-old child is admitted to the paediatric intensive care unit with status epilepticus and it's following a prolonged febrile convulsion. The kid is extubated, they're ventilated and they're really quite sick so they've had a CV line fitted. Broad-spectrum antibiotics have been started and the nurse asks you to write up prophylactic oral nystatin because that's what the protocol says. The assumption being that the non-absorbable antifungal will reduce the incidence of invasive fungal infection within critically ill children. Now that was a bit of a surprise and so it led to a structured clinical question. Do prophylactic, topical, non-absorbable antifungal modications, that's the intervention, decrease the incidence of invasive fungal infections? that's the outcome, in immunocompetent critically ill children who are on a broad-spectrum antibiotic, and that's the patient or problem group. Now, this gang went away and searched eight different databases using an extensive search strategy and found really quite a lot of articles. A lot of those articles were crushed, though, because they were in non-paediatric, they were in immuno incompetent patients, the, the neutropenic lot with cancer, or they were in neonates and on the neonatal intensive care unit. What they finally got down to was that there were two systematic reviews, one sort of comparative historical control, historical cohort study, and a couple of RCTs. The RCTs were actually within one of those systematic reviews. And so what it really boils down to is that there's three large chunks of evidence that might inform an answer to this question. As with many of the ICU-based questions, the paediatric part of the evidence is subsumed a bit within the adult part of the evidence. 
And in the systematic review, there were 15 randomised controlled trials. None of them were large, and only two of them were paediatrics, one looking at 23 patients and the other looking at 50 patients. When you put all of them together, you find a range of things used, uh, amphotericin B lozenges, nystatin, all sorts of little bits of things in different doses and regimes. When they pulled together what they could, they found that it didn't particularly make a great deal of difference. Adding in the extra information from the cohort study, that is where you compared the rate of infections in a group where you do the prophylaxis to an old sort of a historical group where the prophylaxis wasn't given and then throw in a review based around more untargeted treatment that is where they give antifungals of different sorts just because someone looks sick versus definite uh, invasive fungal infection groups putting all that together there's really very little evidence to support this practice there's no clear difference in mortality no clear difference in invasive fungal infection and the data that are there are really quite compromised with confounding by indication with possibly the sicker patients being more likely to be given now in this situation it's difficult to come up with an absolutely definite answer if there was really good quality information showing that there was absolutely no benefit it would be straightforward but it's not it's not very good information that sort of probably says it's not really something that you should be doing and extra drugs more side effects meh. what it really really needs is a trial of course but you can't just go setting up a trial you need to do something in the here and now while that trial is in progression and so their clinical bottom lines on the basis of this best available evidence are really quite sensible. They offer that there is insufficient data at the moment to support the routine prophylactic use, but that decisions regarding the use of prophylactic antifungals should really be made on a case-by-case -case basis. Those kids that maybe are at the highest risk, and that's really quite difficult to say, those kids could probably get something, but it's a bit unclear as to whether it would make a difference. Now, that's the Archimedes podcast for this month. There'll be another one coming along next month, we hope. And you too can throw in your extra information and delight, and that will give us more Archimedes topics to discuss, and you too can be a podcast-ish radio star. Until next month, thank you for listening.